Um, if you have a Bible, if you'd go ahead and open it up to the Gospel of Luke, we're going to start a new sermon series today, and we're going to be in this book for a little while. Uh, don't worry, we're going to take some breaks. We're going to study other things as well. But I want us to begin and kind of kick off our study of this book with a bird's eye view. Um, so we're going to start today with really more of an overview of the entire book of Luke. Um, one problem that can happen as you go slowly through a book of the Bible is that you can kind of get lost. You can lose focus. Um, you can overly examine the tree in front of you and forget that you're in the middle of a forest and there's a lot more to look at. So today we're going to kind of quickly fly over the book and look at it more from 40,000 feet. And I want to do this so hopefully we don't get lost later on and I think it'll help us to prepare for our studies as we go through it. Now, today, the way I'm going to kind of do this overview is I'm really just going to look at what I think the main theme of the book of Luke is. Um, there's a lot of different ways to preach overview sermons. I, I really don't want today to just be a lecture where I just throw all sorts of background information at you. Um, I want you to be prepared for the book, but I also want to show you why this book matters um, and why it matters for us to study. So today we're really I'm just going to read Luke 1, the through four, just the first four verses. I'm not going to read the whole book of Luke. Don't worry if you were nervous about that. Um, and we're going to have really one point um, of the sermon, but it's going to have a lot of blank spaces, and we're just going to kind of slowly walk through it. Um, so if you're able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Luke, chapter 1, the first four verses of the first chapter. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Would you pray with us? Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning. Um, you would help us to see in the Gospel of Luke who you are, because you are so many things, and, and we still want to learn more about them. pray that you will be with us as we do this. Help us to not get lost or confused or for us to um, lose focus. Just help us to be amazed at your son, Jesus. pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? So our first part of your blank is just really looking at the message of the Gospel of Luke. So that's your first blank is the message of the Gospel of Luke. Now if I asked you who wrote most of the New Testament, most of you would probably say the Apostle Paul. Or you might answer, you know, well God did if you're feeling you know, cheeky and you want to get technical. And you would be right if you're just going off of who wrote the most books. But if you're counting by sheer length or word count or verses, then the answer is actually Luke. Um, he only wrote one gospel, but it was the longest of all of them. And the gospel of Luke has more parables and more teachings of the Jesus than any of the other gospels. Some of the best known stories in all of the gospels, some of the first things that come to your mind when you think of the stories of Jesus are all found in Luke and aren't found anywhere else. One timely is the story of Christmas and the Advent story that we'll read. It's here longer in Luke than other places. It's also only volume one. And the book of Acts is meant to be volume two. It's all kind of meant to flow seamlessly together into one another. Luke is all about the message and the mission of Jesus. And then Acts is about how the mission of Jesus continues in the life of the church. So if you just take those two books and that big chunk, Luke has written most of the New Testament. But who is Luke? Um, now, unfortunately, we actually know very little 
about the author of this book. We know that he's not Jewish, but he's a Gentile. And we know this from Colossians 4. Um, in Colossians 4, Paul lists a number of people who are working with him. And he takes some time to point out, he mentions a few people and says, and these were the only Jews who were with me. And then later on, he mentions Luke. So we know that Luke is a Gentile. In Colossians 4.14, it describes him as a beloved physician, um, which is why we refer to Luke as a doctor, because of what we, we see there. We frequently worked alongside Paul, even though he wasn't an apostle himself or one of the original disciples. He's mentioned to be traveling with Paul in Philemon, verse 24, and he probably accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys, although we don't know how many or for how long. And at the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he mentions that Luke is the only one who's still with him. And we know he wrote this book. That's basically all that we know about Luke, what I've just told you. Um, even church history or tradition doesn't really tell us much more than that, which is surprising because there are many other characters that we know more about. But it'd be helpful for us maybe as we get into the book to understand kind of the book's basic structure. How is it set up? And it's organized fairly simply, thankfully, into four big sections. Um, and the first section starts in chapter you know, 1, verse 1, and it goes till about chapter 4, verse 15. And this section follows Jesus' birth, everything leading up to it, and then before his ministry begins. So everything until 4.15 is before Jesus' public ministry actually starts. So that's kind of the first section there, and that's the section we'll, we'll study, and then we'll take a break. The next section that's going to follow Jesus' ministry after it begins, after his temptation, starts in chapter 4, verse 16, and it ends in chapter 9, verse 50. And this is when Jesus is just ministering in Galilee, kind of the region around um, Christ, where he, where he was born in, in Bethlehem and Nazareth. And then at the end of chapter 9, this is when the focus shifts. It's kind of a big change in the book. And so then most of the book, from 9.51 all the way to Acts, or not Acts, Luke 19.27, Jesus starts to head toward Jerusalem. You'll notice Jerusalem mentioned a ton in the Gospel of Luke in these coming weeks. And everything in his ministry from that point on is just inching closer and closer and closer to the cross for Jerusalem as he's going. And everything climaxes kind of in the, in the last portion of the book, 1928 to, to really the end in chapter 24, with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so it can be helpful to kind of just picture the book in those regions. You just have Jesus before his ministry in the beginning, his ministry in Galilee up to chapter 9, his ministry heading towards Jerusalem, and then everything involving his death, resurrection, and ascension afterwards. And really, the, the message of the Gospel of Luke, it's Jesus. Right? So this, this whole book is about Jesus. Luke 1, 1, he tells us, in so much as we have undertaken to compile a narrative, the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us. So this whole book is just following the story of Jesus. The things accomplished. Well, what things? The things that Jesus accomplished. That's what we're, we're studying. And it's important for us to recognize and acknowledge the genre of this book. You know, it's not just a dry biography listing dates and events. I like to read biographies. There are some biographies that are really good and there are some that make you want to fall asleep. This is not that kind of biography. It's also not a theological textbook. It's filled with theology and it is filled with doctrine and it is useful and, and meaningful that, but it gives us theology through narrative, through stories, 
through parables and lessons and things that Jesus does, not just through a dry lecture where Jesus defines big words and terms. And he tells us the story of Jesus and all that he accomplished. He writes this in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So some take this and kind of understand Luke as well. He's saying, well, this is really just like an apologetic work. Like Luke is writing this so that people can know that Jesus really is the Messiah and the Son of God. And that's somewhat true, but I think it can be misleading for us. If you picture it um, as something that was just written to prove the skeptics wrong, I, I think if you do that, you're going to miss some of the beauty and the depth of this book. Because the book's beauty is that it is true and it really happened, but the beauty of the gospel is also what it means for us. And what it is revealed in the person of Jesus as we look at him. And so he writes this account for us, not so just we can know, hey, Jesus is God, but also so that we can see Jesus. So we can hear what he said 2,000 years ago. And so we can know that the God that we worship today, we've been singing about, is the same Jesus who walked across the water and calmed the storm. And his words have not been changed, they haven't been corrupted, they've been written so that we can have an encounter with Jesus here today, still. And be changed by him. And so that we might have certainty, but okay, certainty about what? Well, really first about who Jesus is. So your next kind of blank here is that the message of the Gospel of Luke is Jesus is the promised king. The message of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the promised king. The Gospel of Luke gets bookended by Old Testament prophecies. Um, the first two chapters are going to begin with many of these prophecies and more statements about John the Baptist and who Jesus will be. Angels come to prophesy to say who they are. And it gives us more details on the births than any of the other Gospels. And then it ends in chapter 24 with Jesus walking along the road and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walks through the whole scripture and says, hey, everything in here that you've been reading, it all points to Jesus. It all is fulfilled in Jesus. It, it all had everything to do with him. And so Luke, even the way he arranges the book at the beginning and the end, is meant to show you Jesus is the promised king. And he wanted to hammer this home. And the primary promise that they were waiting for is that one day their king would come. That a king who was born in the line of David, the king who God promised would rule forever. And that his kingdom would come and it would bring healing and salvation. And they would defeat all of their enemies and bring true and lasting peace. That's the king that was promised that they are waiting for. So David's name, it's going to be mentioned more than eight times in the first three verses. It's a lot in all of these birth narratives. Why? Because it's trying to point out Jesus is the king born of the line of David. Why does he spend so much time in these opening chapters on birth and genealogies? We can tend to skip them because there's a lot of names we don't know how to read or pronounce. Even I get tripped up on them. But Luke does this to show us that Jesus is from the royal line. It's his papers, his proof of his kingship. And Luke spends, again, more time on the birth of Jesus than any other gospel. This is a reason why Luke is usually what we read at Christmas time because it kind of has the most vivid details. And that's not just because Luke has a good biographical style or he, you know, it's just his way that he likes to write. He's doing this so that we know Jesus is the promised king. In many of these opening chapters, they feature John the Baptist. It's kind of, kind of um, calling our first series here the promised king and the promised prophet. 
because both of them are, were promised and have a lot to do. And John the Baptist is the prophet who was prophesied and promised would come and pave the way for the Messiah. He is Elijah, that he's repeatedly referred to as that. Now next week, Rob's going to introduce you to John the Baptist and remind us and help us see you know, how significant he is as a prophetic figure. The most important thing that John the Baptist does as a prophetic figure is he points to Jesus. He says, this is the king we've been waiting for. Here he is, worshiping. Jesus' first public declaration of his ministry in Luke 4, 18, he stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah 61. You may remember that. We studied Isaiah 60, 61, 62 last Advent. Jesus quotes it and says, hey, all these promises that are in Isaiah about the promised king, they've been fulfilled now. Here I am. And he declares that he is the king who was promised. Jesus, he will repeatedly refer to himself throughout the gospel as the son of man. You may remember from our study of the book of Daniel, that's a kingly title. Title of the king who was to come. And every time that Jesus says this, he's proclaiming that he is the Messiah. And by Messiah, it's not just Savior. They were picturing a king who would save them. But in one of the many reversals of the Gospels, and, and there are many, one of the things that is so fun to see, and Luke does it just as many as the others, is that there's lots of reversals. You may expect something to be one way, but Jesus does it completely another. They were expecting one kind of king, but the kind of king they get is not quite what they expected. First, the king's born to a poor family. Luke is one of the main gospels who points this out. He points out details later when Jesus' parents are going to give an offering and they give the poorers, the poor people's offering. They expected their king would be rich and powerful and yet he is not. And so keep some of this promise of Jesus as the king in mind as we study the rest of the book. Jesus isn't just a traveling rabbi who had some good moral teachings. He's not just a philosopher, and he's not just someone who would die for us, although all of, some of that is true. But he is the promised king. And all of his actions are kingly actions, even if they don't look like what they were expecting from a king. But so what does this king come to do? Well, our, our next blanks here is that the message of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the promised king who came to preach and enact his kingdom. So Jesus came to preach and enact his kingdom. Jesus did not begin his earthly ministry as a king by gathering up an army. He started preaching. And Jesus came to preach the gospel and the good news of the kingdom. In Luke 4, 43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Therefore, I was sent for this purpose. What is his preaching about? He tells us his preaching is all about the good news. It is all about the gospel. And it is all about his kingdom. And Jesus had a lot to say. He preached a lot and he preached for a long time. And Luke has more of Jesus' words than the other Gospels. The Gospel of Luke has more of Jesus' teaching than any other Gospel. It has more of his ethics, more of his commands for us. It has more of his parables as well. Some of the most famous parables of Jesus are only found in Luke. Parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Parable of the Prodigal Son. Luke 15, there's a lot of them. I think there's about 12. Last time I, I checked, if I'm remembering correctly, there are unique parables to Luke. And Jesus did a lot of 
preaching. That's why this gospel is so long. And Jesus' message, as you notice, as he's preaching, it was not just, hey, believe in me and you will be saved, though that is part of the good news. That is how you get in the kingdom. He had more to say as well. The gospel is so much deeper than we could possibly imagine. And the implications of what it means to follow Jesus and to be a part of his kingdom has more than we typically can think of. And the words of Jesus, as we will see, they're often challenging. People did not like what Jesus had to say much of the time. His preaching ran off the crowds. And in fact, the very first time that Jesus preached in Luke 4, the synagogue gets filled with wrath and they try to kill him. At his first public ministry, that's what happens. And the preaching of Jesus is not just offensive in our day. That's not a new thing. Okay, his preaching has been offensive since the first time he started. So the first moment he opened his mouth to preach, people didn't want to hear what he had to say. But Jesus, he came to do both of these things. He came to preach and enact his kingdom. He was not just a teacher who had good ideas. He came as a king to establish his kingdom. And his kingdom isn't just something that is far off into the future. The kingdom of heaven, it began to invade the world the moment that Jesus was born. But another reversal right in the, the Gospel of Luke is that the kingdom of God, it's the upside-down kingdom. That's one of my favorite ways that I've heard to refer to God's kingdom as the upside-down kingdom because it reminds us that it is totally unlike the kingdoms of this world. Israel, what they were expecting, they wanted a kingdom that was going to give them independence. Okay, they wanted a kingdom that led to Israel being their own nation-state again. They wanted a kingdom that conquered Rome and got them off of their backs. And Jesus brought a kingdom, but it wasn't exactly that kind of kingdom. It wasn't what they expected. They wanted a kingdom that destroyed its enemies, but Jesus said to love them. They wanted a kingdom and a king who came in power and might, but Jesus came with humility and he washed his disciples' feet. They wanted a kingdom that they could touch and see and parade a flag around, but Jesus said in Luke 17, hey, the kingdom's already here. It's already among you. The reversal isn't that they thought the kingdom would come and that it's delayed and it'll come off way in the future. No, because Jesus says it's here now. It's establishing itself. It's expanding and it's growing and it's conquering, but it's not conquering quite the way that you pictured before. So Jesus came to preach and enact his kingdom. He's establishing it. He's starting it. Well, who can join him? Who's welcome in the kingdom of God? Some of you probably guessed this, but the message of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the promised king who came to preach and enact his kingdom, which is for all people. Which is for all people. The idea that Jesus came for all people is such a prominent theme in Luke. Some say this must be just the main theme of the book. And they have good reason to think that. It could be right. Because Jesus is not just the king and the savior of the Jews. He is the king and the savior of all people. And the kingdom is for Gentiles too. To the Jews, right, a Gentile was anyone who's not a part of their people. So all, unless you're Jewish, all of us in this room, we are Gentiles. Sometimes we can forget that when we're reading these stories. We think the Gentiles are the Greeks. No, they're us. And Jesus came not just to save Israel, but he came to save the whole world. You see this theme in Luke's writing, especially as you get into the book of Acts. That's kind of the main theme there of how does this work. Now we have Jews and Gentiles together in the church and things are getting complicated. And all of the conflict... And Acts comes to do with that. 
But the kingdom, it doesn't just expand to Gentiles only at Pentecost. Jesus, throughout the whole gospel, was paving the way and making it clear that his kingdom is for all people who come. Over and over, Luke will point out to us this fact that the gospel is for everyone. Jesus, he makes this point in his first public sermon again. I've referenced it many times already in Luke chapter 4. He mentions Elijah and Elisha. And he says, hey, when they preached and healed, they healed people of other nations. Of all the miracles that he points out, he points out the ones that were for other people, not for Israel. And he says this um, so that they know, hey, I'm here. And I'm not here just for, to be your hometown prophet and your hometown king. I'm here for everyone. And the kingdom of God is actually for those who we least expect. The kingdom of God, it is for the least of these. In Luke 13, Jesus tells the story of the narrow door. And he says that the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first. And the first shall be last. And there will be Jews who show up and they think that they get to be first because of their heritage. And they read these stories before, but they will find out they're not. They will find themselves last behind the people from all over the world that I, Jesus, have welcomed into the kingdom. It's one of the many reasons they didn't like what Jesus had to say. In Luke 10, the Samaritan is the one who enters the kingdom, while the Levites and the priests do not. In the kingdom of God, it's for the poor, and it's not just for the rich. In Jesus' day, wealth was seen as a sign of righteousness and God's blessing. If you're rich, it must be because you're really holy and you've got it together. Well, Jesus reverses that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. In Luke 11, he says, The rich are fools. In Luke 16, the rich man dies and goes to hell while poor Lazarus inherits the kingdom and eternal life. In Luke 18, the rich young ruler misses out on the kingdom because he loves his wealth more than Jesus. In this kingdom, those who are in poverty are welcome. They can come for free. It doesn't cost them anything. The kingdom of God, it's also for the sick. Jesus spent much of his time in the first several chapters of Luke, especially leading up to chapter 9 in Galilee, healing the sick. And I don't think he just did that to prove that he was God. It wasn't just him doing magic tricks at parties. He did it because he loved them and he cared for them. And because the, he said in Luke 4 that I came to give sight to the blind and to set the captive free. Jesus came to be with those who were unclean and who were unwanted. And the kingdom of God is for women as well and not just men. It's not an accident um, that the people with the most faith in the first two chapters of Luke are the women who are giving birth. While the priest is kind of not really sure what he really thinks, even when the angel is in front of him. In Luke 8, it's mentioned that there were not just many women who were Jesus' disciples and who followed him, but it mentions that it was women who financed his ministry. Luke is the only one who gives us that detail. When all the other disciples fall away, the women are mentioned to still be following Jesus, even to the cross, even as Peter has denied him and everyone else has ran off. It is the women who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. It is the women who are the first to announce that Jesus has come back. Because Luke wants you to see the kingdom of God is for women too. The kingdom is, is for all, and the kingdom is also for children and for infants. In Luke 18... People are bringing their newborn babies to come see Jesus. I never noticed that before. I knew it was kids, but they were bringing an infant. Here, Jesus, would you hold my baby? And Jesus' own disciples, they try and stop him and say, Hey, 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 kingdom's not for them. When they grow up a bit, 
Maybe then they could come see Jesus and they have something to offer and they can follow him. But it's just, this is a baby. Jesus has a lot of things to do right now. He can't hold your kid. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't keep them from coming. The kingdom of God belongs to children too. And the kingdom's for sinners. Throughout this gospel, we'll see Jesus get into trouble for how much time he spends with sinners. He eats with them when no one else would. There's a number of interesting dinner parties that Jesus attends to where he teaches a lot. And Luke is the one who tells us this was dinner parties. In Luke 18, it's the tax collector who has his prayer praised. While the Pharisee has his rejected. In Luke 7 is the prostitute who washes Jesus' feet. And everyone says, Jesus, don't you know who she is? How much of a sinner she is? Send her off. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The kingdom is not for those who have it all together. The kingdom is for those who know that they don't. The kingdom is for those who are sinners and know that they need Jesus. It is not for those who think that they are really righteous and have life figured out. The kingdom of God is even for men on death row. The man who died next to Jesus, he asked him about the kingdom. Luke 23, he asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a very humble prayer. And Jesus' response is, you will be with me in my kingdom. Today I tell you, you're going to be there too. Luke again is the only one who mentions that story. Why? Because Luke wants us to see that the gospel and the kingdom is for all people. No sinner is too far gone. Even the dying can come to Jesus. The kingdom is for anyone who comes. Luke 14 has my favorite parable. Um, it's the parable of the great banquet. And he tells the story of somebody who invites all the rich and all the important, all the people you want to hobnob and network with and all their friends to come to this big banquet and party. But nobody comes. They all have excuses. They all have reasons why they're too busy or they have stuff going on or another party to attend. We want to be there. And so the master says, go out into the streets. Find the poor. Find the crippled. Find the lepers, find the blind, find the lame, find anybody who wants to come and tell them, I've got a banquet ready and whoever shows up gets to eat because the kingdom is for everyone. And anyone who wants to come to Jesus, no matter how dirty or sinful or broken you feel, there is a feast that awaits you if you just come. So the message of the Gospel of Luke, so Jesus is the promised king. He came to preach and enact his kingdom. It's for all people through his life death, resurrection, and ascension. He reveals all of this to us through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And all of these, I don't think they can really be separated from one another because they're all an intricate part of the story of Jesus. If you ripped any of them out, it would give us some pretty significant theological problems. Because this is the story of Jesus, the story of who he is and what he has done. Now, some of the times we can be tempted to just pick our favorite parts and ignore others. Um, but the story of the Gospel of Luke, it will not make any sense unless you finish it. Unless you read all of these. Most of the Gospel is about Jesus' life. Now, you got 19 chapters that are all following what he does. And in his life, it shows us that he is who he says he is. He is the king. Shows us that he really did live a perfect life, that he was a worthy sacrifice for our sins, and that he was God. And it shows us what he taught. People did not make it up later after him. These are things from his words. But Luke, he also writes about his life so we can get a picture of Jesus. So we can see his compassion to kids and infants in Luke 18. 
so we can see his brilliance when he repeatedly is eluding the Pharisees as they try to trap him with their brilliant questions, and over and over he just flips it around on them. Jesus didn't just come to die, he came to live as well, and his life has much to teach us. So don't skip past it too quickly. We don't just get quotes of Jesus and his wisdom and his ethics, we get a portrait, I think, of who he is so we can understand who we worship. But Jesus didn't just come to live, he also came to die. So much of what happens in Luke, it is heading on a trajectory towards Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where Jesus will die. Jerusalem is the location of the cross. And Jesus, he's not just geographically heading towards the cross, he's theologically heading there as well. You'll see over and over throughout Luke, he'll tell his disciples, okay, son of man came and he's going to die. And everyone's confused, but he's trying to tell them over and over, I'm heading towards my death. He tries to prepare his disciples for the suffering to come. Two separate times, even just in Luke chapter 9, he tells them he's going to die. Luke 13, the Pharisees, they try and warn Jesus. say, Jesus, Herod wants to kill you and get rid of you. And Jesus just laughs. And he says, well, I'm not in Jerusalem yet. So it's not time. I'm heading there. I'm going there. But it's early. Good luck, Herod. Because he's not going to die until it's time for the cross. And the climax of the story is when we get to Jesus' death because our promised king did come to die. And everything that he preached and was revealed and it was only made possible because of the cross. And the kingdom is realized at the cross and all are made welcome because of what Jesus did at the cross. And the kingdom is established at the cross. It's this incredible reversal where the cross is not the defeat of Jesus. It's not a tragedy of, man, it's so sad. We had the greatest leader ever and they killed him. And now what do we do? We just try and remember him. No, that is actually our victory. This is what makes everything that Jesus said before possible. Because we can't be saved unless our king dies. His spilled blood is what secures our salvation. And all the promises of God throughout all of the scriptures, all of the sacrifices that God took so much effort to set up and teach his people over and over again, they're all void unless Jesus dies. The whole point of it was to lead to Jesus at the cross. It all builds and everything culminates when Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem. And the cross, it's such good news because of what comes next in the resurrection. Because Jesus comes back to life. He doesn't come back to life because the Romans were really bad at killing people and they didn't figure it out and he recovered. No. He came back because he's God. And he's resurrected because God has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. He's resurrected because now he has the keys to hell and the grave. He's resurrected because he's the king who conquers not just the kingdoms of man, but he conquers the kingdoms of sin and death. And he wins. And the resurrection is the reason, one of the many reasons we follow Jesus. Resurrection, it is our only hope in our life and death that yes, we're all going to die. It's been a long time telling you about that. You didn't think you could escape it again. Okay? You're all going to die. But why do we follow Jesus? Because we know that, but we can have hope anyway. Because He is the God of resurrection. He's the God who came back. And we're going to die, but because of Jesus, we will live again. And we can laugh in the face of death, because death, where is your sting? Our Savior already beat you. I'm not scared anymore. And following the resurrection, we have Jesus' ascension up into the heavens, the ascension, that's one of the things we skip over. You may think, hey, why'd you put that there? I, I get the other three, but what are we doing? Well, it reminds us of what Jesus is doing now. 
If you end after the resurrection, then the question is, well, well where's Jesus? Where'd he go? I thought he came back. Well, he came back and he was resurrected. So what? Well, he ascended up into heaven and now we wait for him to come back. And when he comes back, resurrection comes with him. And when he comes back, the kingdom is more fully enacted and all the kingdoms of the world are conquered. And all of this, all of these things together, his life, his death, his resurrection, the ascension, they're all an essential part of Jesus and his story. And all of them are a part of God's plan from the very beginning before he said the words, let there be light. And the Gospel of Luke tells us the story. Jesus couldn't be the promised king if he didn't fulfill all of those. All of the scriptures. And he fulfilled them all through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He couldn't have enacted the kingdom. Couldn't have preached the kingdom. If not for how he lived. If not for how he died. And if not for how he came back. And for where he went and where he will return. The kingdom of God wouldn't be for all people if Jesus did not live and die and come back. It's all part of the story. You can't skip any of it. And we won't. That's why it's going to take us a while to go through it. So the message of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the promised king who came to preach and enact his kingdom, which is for all people, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So why are we studying this book? Well, I've got a couple hopes for us. Um, my hope isn't just that you'll have this nice statement all memorized. If you don't, that's fine. If you do, if it's helpful, great. If not, you can forget it. But I do hope that part of, part of what I hope is that when we finish studying this book, you will have a good understanding of what the Gospel of Luke says, that you'll feel confident in it, that you can open up your Bibles, not that you'll feel like you have it all figured out and you don't need to read it anymore, but that the next time you open it up in your own study through your Bible reading plan, you know where you are. You have a better handle on it. and You feel confident even as you read some of the weird parables. And I didn't choose the Gospel of Luke because I thought it would just be fun or interesting. Maybe there's some new things for us to hear here. My hope is that as we study this book, our, our vision of the Gospel will grow. That we will recognize more and more and realize the Gospel is not just believe in Jesus so that you can find forgiveness for your sins, though it is that. As wow, Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom and his preaching. I need to listen to Jesus. I also hope that our image of Jesus will be adjusted because we need to encounter the Jesus of the Scriptures and of the Bible. Jesus as He really was and as He is. Everyone has their own version of Jesus in their heads, even those who never want to step foot in a church. They've got an idea of who they think Jesus is. They have an idea of what they think Jesus says. And there are many who say that they are followers of Jesus who haven't read much of Jesus. And we'll also be surprised at some of the things that Jesus says and does. And so I think all of us, too, we need to read the Gospels again. We need to see if the image that we have of Jesus is right, if it matches. Because there's going to be some places where I think Jesus says some things that still make us scratch our heads or poke at us, convict us. My last hope really is that I hope as we study the Gospel of Luke, it's going to cause us to grow in our love for King Jesus and for His kingdom. That we will grow in faith and hope and love. And by the finish, I hope by the time we finish, that we're all more enamored and more captivated by Jesus than when we started. I hope that we'll find Him more beautiful. I hope that we will realize more and more that Jesus is worth everything that we have and that following Him is worth it. I hope that when we're done, it doesn't make us never want to read a gospel again, but it leaves us wanting more of Jesus.
because that's the goal. Summary again, the message of the gospel of Luke, Jesus is the promised king who came to preach and enact his kingdom, which is for all people through his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension. And I hope that when we finish this series, we're all more in love with Jesus than when we began. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I, I pray that you will aid us and guide us as we begin to walk through this gospel. I pray that you will give us eyes to see you as you really are. Lord, I pray that our blind spots and our blinders, the places where we have assumptions about you or the things that we are wrong about what you say, that you will convict us. Lord, that your word and your Holy Spirit will help us to behold Jesus and not just look at him and not just marvel at him, but that you will also help us to transform our lives, that you help us to slowly be conformed into the image of your Son that we will be more like Jesus at the end than we are now. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior Jesus one more time. This benediction from the end of 2 Corinthians. And may the grace of our victorious Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace.